To begin, I want you to imagine a place of immense splendor and grandeur. A place that has all new categories that are new to your imagination. Somewhere unlike anything on planet Earth. Movie makers have tried to produce this on multiple occasions. Movies like Tomorrowland, uh, Alice in Wonderland, The Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, uh, Atlantis, Star Wars, right? Maybe you can think of others. Maybe you've read a book or uh, seen another film where this sort of idea is depicted, somewhere that is intended to blow your mind, intended to floor you in a sense, somewhere that's indescribable and fascinating. But friends, whatever fantasy land comes to mind, when you think of somewhere that is just truly fascinating, I can promise you this, it pales in comparison to what heaven is going to be like. Last week, Deontay did a wonderful job teaching us about the rapture. Uh, Right now, we're in the church age where the time uh, of the fullness of Gentiles is being brought in. Both Gentile and Jews alike are the people of God, although the majority of the church is Gentile. But once the fullness of Gentiles comes in, once the time is right, God will rapture the church away. As we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is a description of what is called the rapture of the church. And this will be followed by a tribulation period of seven years. Seven years where God unleashes his wrath upon the entire earth. One purpose of this time is to judge those who have rejected him, uh, but another purpose is to bring Israel back to repentance in Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles will be saved, but God's primary focus will be to restore the people of Israel during what's known as the tribulation period. And at the end of this time, Christ is going to return with those of us who have died or been raptured to the earth. At this point, he'll cast the Antichrist into the lake of fire. He will cast Satan into the abyss. And at that point, he will resurrect the Old Testament saints and establish his millennial kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. He will rule with a rod of iron, meaning that no one will outwardly disobey him. All will be in outward obedience to Christ's rule on earth. And at the end of this thousand years, Satan will be released once more and will deceive many after him who inwardly were rebellious. Christ once and for all at this point will abolish Satan and all of those who follow him into the eternal lake of fire, into the permanence of hell. Christ and his followers will then enter into the new heaven and the new earth, and so we shall always be with him. Amen, right? (laughs) The reason I give this brief overview of eschatology um, is because we're going to focus in on the end of it tonight, and so I kind of wanted to catch us up from Deontay to tonight, but just kind of to pause for a moment, isn't it neat that we get to know the future? That's just a fascinating reality to me. All throughout the Old Testament, God is predicting the future and then fulfilling it time and time again. And there would have been generations that would see the fulfillment of a promise of God throughout the Old Testament come to fruition right before their eyes. We get to look back and see the prediction and the fulfillment time and time again, particularly with the person of Jesus. And now we get to know and see the future beyond the age of the church as well. It's truly fascinating, fascinating thing. know. And so friends, my hope tonight is that as we look at the very end, heaven 
eternity with God, I just hope this encourages your hearts. I hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you. It, it, I hope it gives you motivation to press on. So I want to begin by praying, and then we'll uh, start. Father, we thank you for this evening, already beginning to worship you through music, to worship you through fellowshipping, Lord, and now we ask that we would also worship you through uh, studying your word, Lord, through hearing your word and responding to it. God, uh, devote our minds to you. God, keep our minds from being distracted during this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first question I want to ask in studying heaven is, what is heaven like? Heaven's not a foreign concept to society, is it? No, all you got to do is look at some of the movies that have come out and you'll see heaven is a very familiar term. Movies like Heaven is for Real, uh, books or movies like 90 Minutes in Heaven, a new one coming out, Miracles from Heaven, and of course the classic All Dogs Go to Heaven, right? Yeah, who didn't grow up on that one? Unfortunately, though, most of the modern films and portrayals of this supernatural experience are phony. They're fake. They're just made up or simply hallucinations. However, reacting to this equally uh, tragic are those who want to throw heaven out altogether. Because of these, uh, these instances, because of these films, they may look at it and say, oh, well, there's contradictions. Look, you know, this person goes to heaven and this, this person goes to heaven and sees that. It, you know, it can't all be real. How can they both be real? So what, is heaven just whatever I want to believe? Well, if that's the case, then I want heaven to be football friends and buffalo wild wings right? This is equally as tragic, right? There's, there's, there's multiple ways to go wrong here. And maybe even more sad than this is those who admit that there's a heaven and admit that there's a hell, but they're not afraid of going to hell. They think hell is going to be a place to hang out with their friends and party and just have a good time. Unfortunately, guys, many, and I mean many, have this perception of heaven and hell. And yet the reality is that all of us are going to end up in one of these two places. You're either, you're either going to be in heaven with God or in hell separated from God. You know, I wonder about people's perception when they find out it's true. With all the uh, confusion, with all the chaos, with all the perversion, I wonder what their reaction is going to be when they find out it's true. And I got to laugh because I enjoy watching movies, and you'll see how this all connects in a minute. Um, guys, if you want to start getting that movie ready, uh, sci-fi, action movies, Marvel, okay, superheroes. So I'm going to show a short clip, and then we'll maybe make a few connections. Do you know what happened to him? A lot of rumors, stories. People that knew him best think he went looking for the first Jedi temple. The Jedi were real. I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. The crazy thing is... It's true. The Force, the Jedi... All of it. It's all true. All right, so we've been talking about maybe doing a Star Wars movie night this summer at some point, but for you Star Wars nerds like me. Uh, so I laugh at this because no, the Force isn't real, although that would be super cool. And no, Jedi are not real. 
And no, there's no Luke Skywalker. But it did make my mind think about this, the shock that people are going to experience when they realize that Jesus Christ was and is real. When they realize that Christians indeed did have the spirit of God within them. I wonder what sort of epiphany is going to hit them when they realize that heaven, hell, angels, demons, the spiritual realm that, we, that exists right now, when they realize it was all real the whole time. Even people within the church are going to be shocked by this reality. Heaven is for real, friends. It really is. And so tonight I want to ask and answer a few questions about heaven. And first is this, what does the Bible say that heaven will be like? And the first thing I want to set forth to you is that heaven is going to be a place. There's been some debate about this actually, whether it's a place or just a state of being, seeing that it is spiritual and where our souls go and and adding to the fact that God is omnipresent and eternal. Some have argued that heaven is just a state of being, Uh, but it seems that scripture indicates that heaven is a, a place. Turn to the book of Acts. I'll show you a few evidences for this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter one. In Acts chapter one, We'll go to a couple passages. Verse 9, speaking of Jesus, it says, After he said these things, he was lifted up while, we, while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So again, emphasis two times on the fact that Jesus went into heaven. The same thing, flip to Acts chapter 7. This time, speaking of Stephen, uh, in verse 55, says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, we see him looking into heaven, seeing Jesus, seeing the glory of God. In the same way, flip back to the book of Luke, a couple books to your left, chapter 24. In Luke 24, verse 51, Jesus is in his resurrected form, his last moments with his disciples. And in verse 51 of chapter 24, it says, While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he descends up into heaven. He didn't just vanish, right? But I think the strongest evidence for the fact that heaven is a place is in the Gospel of John. If you're in Luke, you're right at John. Just flip to your right to John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And so, again, Jesus referring to a place three times. Um, In the end, this isn't an entirely dogmatic thing, but the evidence does seem to point to the fact that heaven is, in fact, a place. It is a literal, physical place that we will be as believers. Now, to further emphasize this point, the second point I want to look at is that heaven contains a city. It contains a city. It's a a place that contains a city. Flip back to the book of Revelation, 
chapter 21, the very last book in your Bible. And in Revelation 21, look at verse 2. John, speaking of his vision that was given from the Lord, says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we see there's going to be a city, this holy city. This city exists in conjunction with the new heaven and the new earth that's talked about in verse 1 that we'll look at in a moment. And it contains the bride of Christ. That is, the people of God. This will be the fulfillment of what we just saw in John 14 too, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. This is the fulfillment of that. And really what follows is a description of this place for the rest of chapter 21. And so what will be true of this place, if we continue in verse 3, says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So this heavenly city will be a place where God himself is. Like the Old Testament tabernacle where, where God would dwell in the tabernacle, he likewise, likewise will dwell with the people of God in close communion. They shall know him truly without barriers. Further in this heavenly city we saw there's no pain, there's no tears, there's no mourning. And why? Because there's no sin. There is no sin in heaven. The saint's salvation is complete, now being freed completely even from the presence of sin, not just from its penalty and its power. They will be one with Christ and they will be one with God in perfect intimacy. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But what is this city going to look like? Well, it's going to be a city that is new and glorious. Look at verse 9 of chapter 21. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like, costly, was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. I want to stop there for a moment and just point out a few observations. One is that this city has the glory of God about her, right? John says it had the appearance of many costly stones. And in fact, the term jasper refers to a perfectly clear stone in which the glory of God can radiate throughout the entire city. To add to this, later we'll see that in heaven, the gold is both valuable, but it's also clear, and the meaning for that clearness is, again, that the glory of God can radiate throughout the entire city. Overall, this city's beauty will be stunning. Okay, let's continue, though. Verse 12, it had a high and great wall with 12 gates and the twelve gates, uh, and at the 12 gate, gates angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. 
The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We're not going to dig into the details of this, but wow, what a city. Isn't this just fascinating? It's almost as if John is reaching for words to describe the beauty and glamour of what this city is going to be like. I just want to point out a few observations here, too, before moving on. And one is that it seems to, again, make it clear that this, this passage is speaking of a place. This is a place where saints will be. And further, every indication from this passage points to the fact that this is a literal city. Look again at verse 17. He says, And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Again, in case one make the case, well, angels are spiritual, and so is this entire scene, he says, no, it's the same type of measurements that we are experiencing on earth. A yard is a yard, whether here or in heaven. In addition to these, though, as a whole, again, I just want to highlight the splendor of this place to reflect the majesty and the glory of God. John is throwing out every kind of beautiful thing. He lists 12 types of stones in describing the value of this place, the, the worth, the radiance of this place called heaven. It will be a truly amazing place. But friends, if you look at Revelation 21, verse 1, we see not only is there a city, but there is also a new heaven and a new earth as well. Look at Revelation 21, 1. John, to begin this whole chapter, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then in verse 2 is when the new Jerusalem comes out of the new heaven. While this new heaven and this new earth was prophesied time and time again in the Old Testament, one of the times is Isaiah 65, 17, where God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Uh, likewise, 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 10, refers to this as well. Peter says in 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So we see God will destroy the old earth, whether entirely and then recreate, or just the surface and redo it. Either way, he is going to create and recreate, create or recreate the new earth and a new heaven to accompany this heavenly city that we just read about. He, in a sense, is going to recreate the initial perfect scene that existed in the garden with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, where there's no sin. The entire world is not corrupted by sin yet. That's what, what the end times will be like, again, with a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven, new earth, new city. But who's going to be there? Did you happen to catch that in Revelation 21? Who's going to be in this new city? We know it's a place that contains a city that's new and glorious. 
And in Revelation 21, verse 9, we read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so we see a place, that being heaven, where saints are gathered. The new city of Jerusalem will consist of saints who have the righteousness of God accredited to their account. Those who in Revelation 21, verse 27, have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, the marriage supper has occurred now, and now the people of God are one with God as his bride, as his wife for eternity. The union is complete by this point. And in addition to the people of God, the saints, both Old Testament and New, there's going to be angelic creatures, angels, cherubim, seraphim, all sorts of people and creatures there to worship God. Heaven will be about worshiping God. And ultimately, what's going to be the mark of heaven? What's going to be the distinguishing factor of heaven? What's going to be so great about heaven, so unique about heaven, that's so different, that should create a longing for it? What's so different about heaven? Well, this. It's that we're going to be in the presence of God forever. We will be in the presence of God forever. This is what heaven is. All the things we've just read are just descriptions. But the nature, the true uh, existence of heaven is the nature of God being revealed to his people. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3 again. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Did you catch that? Three, maybe even four times, he alludes to the fact that God will be with his people. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God. It was set apart. Only priests could enter it, and only once in a while. Okay, but now the tabernacle is among men. It's among the people. And then three times it says, he shall be among them. God will be among them. He will dwell among them. And really, friends, this is his design from the beginning. Right? Do we not see God dwelling with his people in the garden? Do we not see God dwelling with the nation of Israel in the tabernacle? Do we not see God dwelling, indwelling uh, believers, right? The Spirit of God indwelling believers. How about the incarnation? Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling among men. And now here in the end times, what we see is this God dwelling among men perfectly. Perfectly, completely, in full unity. The dwelling with man will reach its high point. Verse 3 closes by saying, They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What a beautiful scene. We're going to be with God in his very presence. And in fact, it will be so beautiful, so glorious, so much emanating glory, that if you look at verse 23 of this 21st chapter, it says, The city has no need of sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Fascinating. Not only though is this future glorious and wonderful and awesome reality going to happen, but it is for sure going to happen. It is secured. And I want you to go from Revelation, just four or five books back to your left, to the book of 1 Peter, so you can see this. 
First Peter chapter 1, and in verse 3, fascinating what we see here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we're going to see the reason or what we are born again to. In verse 4 it says, To... So again, you're born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Friends, this inheritance, this security of our salvation, this surety of heaven is all of these things. It's imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. And you want to know who's protecting it? You want to know who's guarding it? Look at verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God has called some to himself. He has given them faith and he will complete this salvation in the end times by delivering this promise of heaven. Isn't that wonderful and yet kind of mind-blowing at the same time? Flip back to Revelation 21. And in light of this, in light of how great and awesome and sure this reality is, I've got to ask a question. This just bothers me. I can't not ask questions. And I have to ask the question, why? And not necessarily why to the surety of it, why to the certainty of it, but I'm asking why to the whole thing. If this is what heaven's going to be like, this wonderful, in the presence of God, just blessing, just awesome, I mean, God, Why? Why is he doing this for us? Why has he allowed us to experience heaven? Why has he included us in on this in the first place? Why has he saved us? I am not good. I'm not a good dude at my core. And I don't think anyone in here is because the Bible says you're not. So why has God saved us and promised us such riches in eternity? And although we may never know the mind and the will of God perfectly, I do think Scripture gives us at least two reasons why. And the first is this. It's that God desires to share blessing with his people. God desires to share blessing with his people. Get this, friends. God is triune. He's always been triune. For all of eternity past, he was a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he has always loved within himself. It's not as though God was unloving and then all of a sudden he decided to become loving and create. God has always been loving. And the very fact that he is loving is why we can love, right? It's why we can love one another because we're made in the image of God. So therefore, as an extension of this love, it really shouldn't come as a surprise that God desires to bless those who love him. It's, a, it's an extension of his love to save and to bring in and to bless because he's always been loving, Now, what's this blessing going to be? Well, I've said it, but it's going to be dwelling in the presence of God. It's going to be being in close communion and enjoying God. And it will be enough. Right? We often get these misconstrued ideas about heaven being cotton candy and roller coasters and rainbows. And no. Friends, in fact, get this. In, In church history... Some theologians believed, and although it's not explicitly in the text, I think it's an interesting idea. They believed that the first 1,000 years of heaven would be spent just staring at Jesus. Not a single blink of of an eye, not a single turn of the head for the first 1,000 years. And then maybe after 1,000 years, you'll glance away for a moment and then look back. Okay? Heaven is going to be in the presence of God. 
And it will be enough to satisfy all, and I mean all, of the deepest longings of the human heart. Your deepest longings will be more than satisfied in heaven. Trust me. And I think David had it right in Psalm 27.4 when he said, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Right? This was David's ambition on earth, and yet heaven will be the sure reality of this truth. Dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. Jesus taught in Matthew twenty two thirty 30 that uh, there won't be marriage in heaven, so we know there won't be sex. Uh, but friends, I want to tell you this, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that will be in Christ and in God in heaven will be more satisfying than anything, anything earth has to offer. It will be more satisfying than anything. Psalm 74, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. This captures that idea well. And I think that as a whole, we need to be careful about underestimating the majesty of God. We need to be careful about underestimating the beauty of God, and we need to be careful about underestimating the presence of God. It's way too easy to underestimate those three things. In fact, just to see this, I want to show a few examples. Flip back to Isaiah. If you go to the middle of your Bible and kind of turn to the right, you'll find Isaiah. Chapter 6. I want to give a few brief examples of those who have encountered the Lord and what their response was. And we'll start with the most familiar one. Isaiah 6, in a vision, uh, he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just briefly, the train of a queen is the part of her dress that trails behind that signifies her majesty, her worth, and it says the train of God fills the temple. Utmost majesty, utmost worth and value. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. In other words, four of this creature's wings are devoted to humility in the presence of God, covering eyes, covering feet. Two of them are devoted to serving God. Verse 3, and one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I, John said, or sorry, I, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, what Isaiah is saying here is that he should be undone. He should be unraveled. He should be reduced to a teaspoonful of protons and neutrons and electrons. He should not be able to exist. Why? Because he's sinful and he knows the holiness of God. He recognizes his sin compared to what he has just seen. And he's just seeing a vision. He's not even in his presence. God is fearfully and wonderfully awesome. In Revelation 1.17, likewise, John this time sees a vision of Jesus, and he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Second Chronicles 5.13, Then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Guys, God is fearfully and wonderfully awesome. Just to kind of capture this by way of illustration, I want you to imagine standing out in the sun, 
Okay, you're just going to take it. You're going to stand in the sun for hours on end, day after day. Okay, what would it eventually do to your body? It would start to burn your skin. You'd start to kind of crinkle up like a raisin. Now I want you to imagine taking this and looking up and staring into the sun. I'm going to take you on, son. How long would your eyes last? Okay, now I want you to imagine jumping one planet closer to the, to the sun and doing the same thing. You're going to stand in there, and then you're going to lift your eyes, and, uh, and then you're going to jump even another planet closer. We're out of planets now. You're on the closest one, okay? And you're standing and trying to take this in front of the sun, and then you're going to get even closer to the sun. Okay, now I want you to imagine the fact, and not even imagine, I want you to think about the reality that God is the creator of the sun. He spoke it into existence. He gives it its power. He gives it its heat. He gives it its light. God could do this. Just eliminate it. Okay? Could he not? Is that not the testimony of scripture? Friends, God's power. (laughs) Do not underestimate the power of God. The radiating glory of God. It is infinitely more than our puny little sun. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? God's in heaven. That's what heaven's like. God is in heaven. Heaven is filled with his presence, the presence of our awesome and almighty God. But friends, here's the wonderful thing. For believers, is heaven a place of fear? No. It's not a place of fear. There's no fear because there's no longer sin. Our sin has been covered. If you've put your faith in Christ, his righteousness has been imputed and covers you. You are clean. You are seen as his righteousness. We are brought into the manifold grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the wonderful thing. We're married to Christ. Therefore, we're joined to the Father and the Spirit as well. We are one with God. There's nothing to fear. And so coming back to this main point, God desires to bless us, and we see that God loves us. Heaven's not a place of fear for the believer because God loves us. Listen to these three verses. I want you to listen closely. It says this, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Guys, heaven is going to be a glorious place because we will be with God due to his great love for us. Speaking of this experience, listen to Wayne Grudem, systematic theologian. He says this, he says, When we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know regarding perfect love and peace and joy and to know truth and justice and holiness and wisdom and goodness and power and glory and beauty. As we gaze into the face of the Lord, we will know more fully than ever before that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, it is very true that heaven exists because God desires to bless his people that we might enjoy him. 
But there's a second reason that heaven exists. As I probe this question, right, we looked at what is heaven. Now, why is heaven? He desires to bless us. Number two, though, is this. God desires to glorify himself. And if you've read your Bible much at all, you know this to be true. You don't really have to search far. But when I think I was most struck by this was a couple years ago as I was reading my devotional time through the book of Ezekiel. And I kept seeing a phrase come up over and over and over again. I started marking it. 63 times, 63 times Ezekiel quotes God saying this, and you will know that I am the Lord. So what you've got happening in this book is God acting, him judging or him promising judgment or him saying he's going to do this or him doing that. And why? So that they may know that I am the Lord. So that they may know that I am the Lord. All through scripture we see this testimony that God desires to glorify himself And for us, this might be egotistical, self-promoting, right? We could never justify that. But to the one to whom all things already belong, to the one whom there's nothing greater than or even close to as great as, in terms of his power, his majesty, his might, and also his goodness and his mercy and his love, to this one, this makes total sense. He deserves all glory and honor and praise. And further, when we give all glory and honor and praise to him is when we are most fulfilled in this life. It's what we were made to do. And so entering into this second point as a humble, finite creature and as humble, finite creatures, I want to approach this humbly, but I do want to try to probe this a little bit deeper and look into this point of him desiring to glorify himself from two aspects. And the first is this, is that what we see is that God is preparing an end times gift for the Son. I'll say that again. God is preparing an end times gift for his son. Both these bigger ideas kind of touch here for a moment. God wanting to bless his people and desiring to glorify himself. In that God has saved us, and even bigger perhaps, God's redemptive plan is yes, because he he loves us, but I would say as much so or even greater than because he loves his son. He saved you in part because he loved Jesus. Let me explain. Go to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We've already been there tonight. John chapter 6. We're going to go to a few passages here. John 6 verse 37. Jesus saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So could it be here that the Father's will in sending the Son was not only to bless and save his creation, but also to bless his Son as well? This verse says the Father has given some to the Son. Verse 44 repeats the idea. No one can come to me unless the Father... Who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Father gives and draws to Jesus. But why? What's going on here? Well, look at verse 24. Uh, Sorry, flip to John chapter 17. And look at verse 24. On the way to 24, I'll repeat a few other things. In verse 9, We see, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Again, in 11 and 12, we see the Father has given some to the Son. But in verse 24 of John 17, 
Jesus is praying this time to God the Father, so God the Son communing with God the Father, and he says this. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. And now we've got to pause, and I just want to set you up. This is going to be a purpose clause. This is going to be a purpose statement. Okay? He desires them to be with him where he is. Why? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. All that the Father has given to the Son, the Son keeps and guards and protects. Why? So that they may see the glory of Jesus, which the Father has given to Jesus. In fact, friends, could you not agree the very purpose of believers' existence boils down to this? Glorify Christ? Worship Christ? Love and serve Christ? Paul in Philippians 3, 7 says this, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss, as rubbish, as dung for the sake of Christ. Christ and his glory are the central focus for the Christian. And what we're seeing is that this is the intentional plan of the Father. It was his plan to give a people to the Son as an object of worship. To really nail this one home, though, flip to the right to the book of Ephesians. You've got to see this with me. If you haven't flipped yet, please turn to Ephesians. After the Corinthians, after Galatians, Galatians Ephesians chapter 5. Right, we're familiar with this passage about marriage, the wife, husband, Christ, the church. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, another purpose clause. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Guys, Christ died for the church. And why? So that the church would be holy and blameless and turn around and worship Christ. The church is meant to be an object of praise to the Savior, an object of praise to the Son that the Father has given to the Son. So yes, Christ redeems the people, and yes, we enter heaven through Christ, but we are also saved to worship Christ. Hmm. This is the fascinating part about the wedding banquet, by the way, Matthew 22, Revelation. Uh, while on the one hand, we are invited guests to the wedding, we're also the bride, right? The church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride what a breathtaking reality. Do you see what God is doing here? We bring blessing to Christ because we're saved in him, to worship him, to love him in perfect unity to the glory of God. Okay, but it doesn't quite stop there. We're almost done. We're considering perhaps why there's even a heaven, why God has saved us unto glory with him. And the first reason is that he desires to bless us. And the second reason is that he desires to glorify himself. And within this point, there is the, the truth that God has given the church, the people of God, as a gift to the Son to worship. But there's another aspect of this as well. From Ephesians, flip to the left to 1 Corinthians. I don't want to be making stuff up, so hopefully it's coming from the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to get a running start. Starting 22. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ, that is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And now honing in on 27 and 28, it says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The he is God and the his is Jesus. God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjected to him. And now hone in on 28. When all things are subjected to him, the son, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Holy cow, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. God has subjected all things. He is in the process of bringing all things under the lordship of Christ. Jesus will be king over everything. Believers, unbelievers, Satan, angels, demons, all that. But then what we see is that Jesus, having this gift, having this position of honor from the Father, is going to turn around and subject himself and all things back underneath the Father. Back to the Father. Why? So that God may be all in all. So that the perfect Trinity, we enter into the Trinity and there is a beautiful harmony and love and submission and care and respect and honor. Isn't this unbelievable no one's nodding that's a bad sign what a stunning picture here of a love of a father for a son a romance in the divine realm mutual care and love from the father and the son mutual honor and respect Guys, our earthly marriage is but a tiny picture of this kind of love, a tiny picture of this kind of unity, and we are going to enter this unity as the bride of Christ. Do you see that our salvation is part of something a little bit bigger? It's part of a bigger picture, a bigger plan. I understand what people say when they say what they mean or what they're trying to get at when they say, Jesus loved you so much that if you were the only person on earth, he would have still come to die for you. Right? I get what they're saying. The problem is I just don't see it in these verses in the Bible. Uh, What I see, in fact, is that the Son has submitted to the Father's will. The Father has desired to glorify the Son, and then the Son has desired to then glorify the Father. Right, And in his grace and mercy, he has extended to us the ability to be saved from our sin, to enter into his presence, to enter into this unity for all of eternity. We're going to worship both Father and Son in complete unity with them through the Spirit forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Guys, we've attempted to explain something that is really not explainable. Uh, It's really beyond mind comprehension, at least my mind's comprehension. I just want to wrap up with a few implications now. We looked at what heaven is and perhaps maybe why heaven, although, again, it's hard to really grasp some of this. Implication number one is this. Our life now impacts eternity. Okay, and I'm not going to spend long here, but uh, go to 2 Peter uh, 1.10 on your own, and you'll see that utmost care and effort should be taken now. Peter says in this verse that the one who diligently strives to live out his or her faith will enter into eternity abundantly supplied. 
Entrance will be a celebration. So friends, are you ready? Are you preparing yourself for eternity? Are you worshiping God now and preparing yourself for an eternity of doing that very thing? The second implication is that this life is transitory and temporary. James 2 says this life is a vapor. Here and then gone. Uh, Psalm 90 says a man's years are 70, or if by way of strength, maybe 80. Okay, right? We know that. It could be way less. 70, maybe 80. Then what? You're gone. You go to all of eternity. So the question is this. How are you storing up treasures? Are you storing up treasures for earth or for heaven? Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Check it out. Uh, Just as a reminder, there's two things, right, that are eternal from this world that are going to pass on. People's souls are eternal, and the word of God is eternal. Therefore, I would submit to you investing in God's word into your own soul and God's word into other people's souls is never a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. Third implication is this. Heaven will far transcend any joy that we have ever known in this life. It will be uninterrupted existence in the presence of God. So I want to ask, do you think about heaven often? Do you long for it? What positive effects do you think that thinking on heaven may have on your Christian life? In 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13, he, he talks about longing for the day. He talks about living and conducting ourselves in a manner that is in line with the reality of heaven. Is this true of our lives? And fourthly, the last implication is that the truth about the relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity is pride suppressing. It is, and that's a good thing. We are not that significant. We are not the center of God's attention, believe it or not. God loves himself. He loves his Son. And yes, he does love us. He does love us, but he does not need us. And we are not the center of God's affections. And so again, guys, cultivate a love for God. Cultivate worship of God. And I just want to say, if this sounds boring to you, just worshiping God for all of eternity, boy, you got to study the character of God. Study the character of God in Scripture. you got to get to know God. Because this God will keep your attention forever, for all of eternity. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you. Uh, again, for these people's patience with me and (laughs) my limitations as a studier and a speaker and uh, going long at times. Father, but as as we look at heaven, Lord, it is a humbling reality that you have so blessed us, God. You have so lavishly poured out your grace upon us. Lord, I know I deserve hell. I deserve your wrath and punishment and no good thing. Lord, not on this earth, not in this life or in the next. And yet, God, what we have just read about and studied is, Lord, it's mercy, it's grace, it's love, it's kindness that is so undeserved. Father, thank you for the truth of heaven, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us to redeem us back to you from our sin. Lord, that in your grace you have a plan that has allowed us to partake in your divine riches, God, of enjoying your presence forever. Lord, all things that we see, the stars, the sun, the moon, the universe, have come from you. It's truly unimaginable how great and awesome you will be. Lord, create a longing in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.